Hey, welcome everybody to That Recruiter Show with me, Rodney Stigall, and... Hey everybody, Julieta Bruzzi. Welcome to, what, week five? Yeah, yeah. <gasps> week five. That's amazing. And uh, thank you for everybody who's who's been listening. It's been great to kind of see, you know, the listenership grow and super appreciative. And I've had some opportunities, Juliet, to have some great conversations with people. Um, I love it. It's been great. Like I've, I've had a few contacts just call me out of the blue. I haven't known them, but um, just kind of talk about content that we've had and things like that. So uh, I, I can only say thank you to everybody. And, and, you know, by any means, please feel free to contact myself or Juliet. It's, I, I definitely enjoy the interaction. That's great. We've had, so we've had two wonderful guest stars and for this week, we felt like it was a good time to go back to the, the original duo, um, Rodney and myself, and we're going to do a little bit of an origins story. So everybody kind of knows the spiel around recruitment that like you never, nobody majored in recruitment. Everybody kind of falls into it and has that way of, of meandering into it. So we're going to do a little bit of a um, of an overview, a, a bit more in depth for Rodney and I for how we came into recruitment and, and our origin stories. And I'm excited to learn and, and ask you some questions because we both have some pretty unique backgrounds. Um, and then second segment, I think we're going to meander around a little bit with with performance management as as we do. We meander around and, and get into those topics. So. Um, Rodney, why don't you, why don't you kick off and, and get going with your story? Sure. Sure. Yeah. I think it's, first of all, I just got to say, it is funny that it's one of those industries that people just fall into, you know, at this point, yes. it is a multi-billion dollar industry within recruiting. Yeah. Just if you look at the services side of it, not even to talk about corporate recruiting and it's such a core function of, of what a company does because companies don't exist without the right talent. And if you look at HR programs, I was in an IO psych program. The way that recruiting is approached is nothing like it happens on the ground. So yes. I, I will begin with that and, and kind of, kind of say, I think it's, it's a high pass. Time I know. I don't, I don't even know how you would develop a a curriculum about it though, from an academic perspective. I mean, there's so many mm -hmm. different ways that any, that companies go about recruitment. Yeah. I, you know, I'll save that as part of my story because I think that's, that's a, you know, was part of like my revelation as I, as I kind of progressed through my career, like there were pieces of, of my background that was like, okay, this is, this is definitely applicable, but no yeah. one else got this. I, you know, this is something that everyone should go through. Um, so I'll back up yes. <laughs> to, to kind of not the very beginning, but, um, you know, we'll say Rodney in high school. Okay. So Rodney in high school and where did you live? So I, I grew up in Melbourne, Florida, <clears throat> here where I am now with, with, uh, Mrs. Stigall. Um, she wasn't <laughs> Mrs. Stigall yet, <clears throat> but we did go to the same high school. And so uh, just like I, I showed you pictures last week, I'll, I'll show you pictures of, of my wife and I in high school. We didn't date. Um, we actually met at our 10-year reunion and started dating after our 10-year reunion. Um, but we knew each other in high school. So in, in high school, I wanted to be an architect. 
And so I took drafting in high school every year in high school. I was kind of learning how to use AutoCAD and all that good stuff. And I had an obsession for houses. And I think that probably came from the fact that we didn't have a lot of money. And so I like to okay. think about like, oh man, if I had all the money in the world, what kind of house would I have? I'll develop this house. Um, but I loved buildings. You know what I mean? Like the idea of yeah. like designing buildings. Do you still, do you still have an affinity for? I do, I do. I, and it's, it's one of those things where I love to look at floor plans and okay. like, okay, why did someone build this? Why is it flow designed this way? It's just something I like to do. I don't know what yeah. it is. I now not commercial buildings, but I think residences, right? Because I think, <laughs> you know, that's an oasis and, and there's an art to, to building an oasis that you spend your life in. Yes. But that's kind of where my head was at in, in high school. It's like, okay, I want to go do this. Um, and probably summer going into my senior year in high school, I picked up um, The Interpretation of Dreams by Freud. Mm-hmm. And I fell in love with it. Now, at, at the time, I didn't have, you know, the wherewithal to go, okay, psycho, psychoanalysis is like, is antiquated and dead, you know, even yeah. in the 90s. But the idea of of kind of dealing with those types of things was fascinating to me. And I read um, Synchronicity by Carl Jung. And um, actually, Anna Freud wrote a, a, a book about uh, flirtation. But it was all these antiquated concepts in psychology that I fell in love with. Yeah. And so I decided, you know, when I go to college, I want to be a psychologist. Now, I didn't think I was going to go to college right away. I thought I was going to have to join the military because I couldn't afford it. <laughs> um, and that's so interesting to me that, I mean, you had touched on this otherwise, that at the time you weren't the best student, but now you're such an avid learner with so much curiosity. Like, I I don't know. Yeah. I, it shocks me that you weren't going to go right to school. You know, I think it, it came down to being the victim of low expectations, if, okay. if I can say that. Not from my parents. My nickname, their, my, their nickname for me was the professor growing up. Oh. But, you know, when I got to school, no one really expected me to, do, you know what I mean? Like, so you didn't have teachers pushing me or anything like that. I was in honors classes, but I was in the background um, and all that stuff. Okay. And in, on top of that, I had three older, three older brothers and a sister um, my dad was, uh, uh, in the air force, didn't have a lot of money. So it was just kind of like, uh, okay. you know, I can't afford this. This, this isn't going to happen. So I applied to everywhere just in case, right. Just to do it. And I got in everywhere and FSU offered me a scholarship Woo-hoo. decision made. Right. So and nobody, nobody sees Rodney right now on our podcast, but he does have his Knowles hat on. I do. I do go Knowles. <laughs> um, and, and to be honest with you, I had never visited <laughs> FSU. And um, so two weeks after I graduated from high school, went there. And it was my Did first time. Did you visit any colleges, though? I didn't. Because I didn't think I, I was going to get in. That's such a, um, so you're, you're a bit older than me. I did, but it was like three very select schools. And then my parents were like, you know, you, you get the gist just to fly now. <laughs> I, I remember my dad, like he, we had a, a Nissan Altima at the time. It was like a okay. ni- 92 Altima. And 
we packed everything in. Like, I didn't know how big the dorm was. I didn't know my roommate. He's just like, just whatever you think you're going to need, we'll pack it in there and we'll go. And I was like, okay, how do we get to Tallahassee? (laughs) (laughs) And my neighbor had just graduated from Florida A&M, which is in Tallahassee. And he goes, okay, you take 95 North and make a left in Jacksonville. (laughs) And then follow the sign that says FSU. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, well, I came a long way from my. Um, I had my dashboard in my old Mercury Sable was had like twenty MapQuest routes from. Remember MapQuest? <laughs> yeah. It was like my most frequent routes, and I would just pull out like they all had like coffee on them. They're all wrinkled, but I would just pull my little catalog. And I was like, oh, here's my. Here's my map to school. Here's my map to yep. <laughs> yeah. So I, I will say MapQuest wasn't invented yet. Okay. When I was when I got there. Um which was, you know, that's a whole other thing. I think that when I got to FSU, they're like my sophomore year, they're like, hey, you can sign up for a free email address. I'm like, what's email? Uh. <laughs> um <laughs> But you know, and I remember like my my dad got there and I I'm thinking, okay, it's a five hour drive. We're gonna hang out, he's gonna help me unpack, and we're gonna have lunch okay. or whatever. So he helps me unpack, moves me into my room. And uh my dad sounded like James Earl Jones. He he looks around and he, he kind of says, Son, I think you need an apartment. And he <laughs> left. <laughs> was it oh my god and he didn't come back until i graduated (laughs) oh my gosh um but that's just my dad like that's his sense of humor and that's you know that's just the way he rolled um but (laughs) i fell in love with life at at school and you know for the first couple of years everything psychology was just fun to me you know what i mean and and i i got a broader interpretation of what psychology really was it wasn't about psychoanalysis it was really you know, neuroscience, different paradigms within, within psychology. And that's why I started learning about more systematic, systematic thinking, like, Hey, you can't just say it's this, you have to have to make sure that you've taken into account biology, genetics, you know, learn behaviors and things like that. Right. And, and so I started to get an appreciation for it. And I I really kind of started to, to get into altered states, like, unconscious states of being like what's going on when you're with your brain function when you're sleeping like particularly Mm -hmm. and that was kind of i wanted to go the phd route study that but around my late in my junior year i kind of looked around i was like you know these professors aren't just professors they have their own private practice that they that kind of does the brings the bills and brings the money in and then they kind of live the rest of their life in the lap. And I was just like, I don't want to live like that. No. And, and I don't want to be a psychologist in the sense that all I do is practice. I I really enjoyed creating the idea of creating new knowledge. So that turned me off to grad school at that point. And so I, I just didn't want to do it. You know, Fast forward to graduation, I've got this degree in well, psychology. Well, for finishing. Mm-hmm. It's so good. It, it was too late to, to change at that point, right? I didn't want to spend an additional, you know, year chasing yes. new prereqs and stuff like that. So yeah, I just kind of 
made the business decision like finish and and you know figure it out so i did and you know ended up a friend of mine worked at aerotech and said hey look if you're looking come interview with us it's it's back in melbourne hometown and you know paid pretty well for you know kid coming out of college at the time it was twenty three thousand four hundred dollars <laughs> Oh my gosh. That's so funny. I remember my, my first salary was Mm $29,400. And then when they told me I could put in for overtime, I was like over the moon. So I probably made like Mm $32,000. And this was 1998. (laughs) So, you know, in, in 1998, that was enough to go live on my own. And Three, Isn't that amazing? Yeah, it's, it's, now it's like a hundred thousand, and you're like, okay, I can live on my own. <laughs> right, like okay, sixty grand, I got to live with my parents, right? Yeah, exactly. And you know, for me, I didn't even know what recruiting was. I had no clue. I, I went through those interviews, and you know, they told me what they did. I, my last interview, I literally shadowed a recruiter, and I still was like, okay, I get it, but people pay for like, this. Why are we- yeah, yeah, yeah. And was it like temp to perm or both? It was or? all contract labor. Contract, okay. And, you know, I, I just kind of was like, okay, I don't really know what this is, but it pays well. And it's in my hometown. Yes. So I'll do it. And, and contract, I could never, I was always so hard to figure out how you were actually getting paid mm-hmm. with those kind of with that kind of work too. Well, that was the interesting part. So it was it was a full time job with Aerotech, but it was it was hiring contractors, and so that's yeah. that was part of the problem with wrapping my head around it. Like, so I'm hiring them to work here, but they don't work there. They work like I'm their boss. How does that? Yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so you know, I I did that, and and I started in August 1998, and I worked for Maxim Group, which was later folded into Tech Systems with an aerotech. But at the time, Maxim Group handled business software. So like ERP developers and, you know, business applications, stuff like that. And within the aerotech family, we typically had a longer recruit time than like engineering or like tech, the, the old tech systems was like help desk people and network engineers. So their, their cycle was a lot faster, but the people that we were recruiting were just, you know, they were $100 an hour people in 1998, 1999. Yeah. That's very different from a, you know, $15 an hour sysadmin. Yes. Back then, I'm not saying sysadmins make that now. Um, so that was really different. I had a different experience. The, the good thing about Aerotech was, again, I didn't know anything about recruiting. And part of what they did was they sent you to Baltimore to their corporate headquarters for a week of training mm-hmm. on their dime, which was really cool. Um, and that's where I started to learn about, you know, how do you, how do you talk to people? What are all these concepts? Like, what are these engineering concepts? What are these IT concepts? They went through all of that. Before I got there, they even went through a, like a dining etiquette to, yeah. if you're going to go have a business meeting, here's the etiquette, you slob right out of school you slob um and, and oh my goodness i appreciated that, a, that that's yeah you know i don't know there's there's so much about etiquette that has um 
shifted. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm curious what that would even look like today, but um, you're absolutely I miss right. The days like the, the Emily post actually at my first job, which, which I'll talk about. I, I had an Emily post, you know, who I'm talking about, right. Mm-hmm. Um, the, I had her book at wow. my desk and it, because we were hosting lots of like international travel and, and things like that. And that, I, I referred to it a lot because there was a section on greeting people from different areas mm-hmm. of the world. Yeah. And, you know, the one of the things that I'm still adamant to this day about is etiquette. I'm by no means an etiquette guru, but f- for us to do our jobs, we have to maintain a certain level of etiquette and yes. combined with interviewing techniques. And I think, you know, that kind of dovetails into some of the training that you get going that route because there's no university system that is going to teach you how to be a recruiter. And the people that I came up with, you know, there were journalism majors, English majors, history majors, marketing, stuff like that. And none of them went through interview training. I was fortunate that as part of my, my psychology program, I went through a clinical interviewing class. And so I went pretty deep into that. And so by, you know, I understood how to, kind of maintain or change energy in an interview, how to kind of conduct yourself to gather information. Now it's a different setting, right? So you're talking about a clinical setting versus an interview, but the principle is the same in the sense that you're, you're trying to to get information from someone and to do that in a, in a, in an effective way, the principle is the same. So I'm I'm forever grateful for that. Well, you're, you're giving me, um, yin to my yang feelings because I I had a boss once that would talk about like the art versus science of recruitment. And Mm -hmm. if you're, if you've got some entrenchment in the science piece, I am the all art, all (laughs) art, all the way. Like I have none of the scientific backing whatsoever. And that was always his, like in performance reviews, he's like, she's got the art over the science. We're working on the science side, blah, blah, Mm -hmm. blah. So Rodney, you're my, you're the yin and my yang for, <laughs> well, for that. <laughs> I'm happy to be, I am happy to be. And, it, but I, I think it's, you know, both are important because I'm, I'm not that much of an art to it. You know, I, I think I've done thousands and thousands and thousands of interviews to this point. So it becomes rote after a while. And, you know, you incorporate that into just your normal behavior, but, you know, I, I, I'm glad for that grounding that I got. And it's always funny. I have a problem when you go to these corporate um, interview classes and you're like, that's not how I learned to do that. And, no. and you're kind of like, uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't think I'm going to absorb that, <laughs> that piece of knowledge. Yeah. And you know, it's funny, our friend, Billy, who, whom we both yes. know. Um, hi, Billy. Hi, Billy. I, she, she shadowed me on an interview. So if you want to know what, what I'm like interviewing someone, talk to Billy. Okay. Um, but it's, you know, the, that training was, was super important. But I think, again, it highlights the, the idea that we don't know what we're doing going, coming into this job. And, mm-hmm. you know, that job at Aerotech was all just blunt force trauma. Yes. <laughs> <It> was, <laughs> make X amount of calls a day. You got to do this many client calls and, and meetings you got to do, you know, take people out to lunch this, this many times a day, this many times a week. Here is your weekly productivity number and it's managed by numbers. It was, I don't know what it's like there now, 
And no, I think it's the same. Yeah, and, and I have an appreciation for it now as as kind of a, a, a TA leader in in my whatever years, because they hired everybody right out of college. They didn't hire industry experts. And then they promoted the most productive people into leadership positions. And so you have people who are great producers, but it doesn't mean they're a good leader. And right. so you've got to give them guidance, like, here's how you know that you're being successful. And that's, you know, that was like managed by numbers, basically. Um, but it, I, I think over time, even before I left there, I understood what it had done to the organization because you did have great producers in leadership positions, some of whom had no business leading people. And it is the place to cut your teeth for, for sure. And yeah. I've, I've had... Um, in some of my prior organizations, it was like, hands down, we want people coming out of agency. Mm -hmm. Um, but I mean, I remember one guy, he had been at a large agency for like seven years. And I think the first thing I said to him, I was like, do you have any stomach lining left? He was like, not really. <laughs> and he said, not really. So I really want to get out. And I was like, dude, I don't know how you've been there for seven years. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's it's really difficult to train a recruiter on the corporate side. You just don't have the resources and time to Absolutely. do that. And, um, it, you know, in a high volume company, like whether it's a Deco, Kelly Aerotech, anything, they've got a system, right? They've got almost through osmosis. You sit in a pit with a bunch of other recruiters and you learn that job. You can listen to everybody else in a corporate environment. Like I had an office for the 14 years. And so recruiters were completely walled off from each other. You did your yes. interviews in private and all that stuff. Um, but I think that was part of my growth was, you know, going from an aerotech where it was like, this is kind of, I don't want to say it's, it, it was monkey work in the sense that you were kind of given these things to do and you did the task. And I, I went over to a large defense contractor after two years. And that's where my eyes opened. In, yes. As far as my career. And, you know, that's where I kind of figured, OK, now I, I think I can become a recruiter the rest of my life. And the reason was there was an integration with the business that required thinking. And it was no longer monkey work. It was that was that's really bad to say. But, you know, it's it's no there's no one counting your your calls every day. There's yes. And, and I've even heard of, of some agencies that listen in on your calls which is yes. wild to me. Um, Rodney, I interviewed, um, I interviewed for a, it was like they're opening a Miami office branch and Miami, you know, it's a big, it's a, a good hump away from where I am, but probably doable like twice a week. And that was like, it was a hard now. <laughs> it was like, we like, like you said, like you learn through osmosis while you're there, but they want that. And it was listening in on your calls oh. and, giving that feedback and yeah, there's, um, that's, that's definitely, you, you need a stiff upper lip to get through that. Yeah. Yeah. And it, you know, from my perspective, I was, you know, I was coming out of the aerotech environment, which there's nothing wrong with aerotech. I don't mean to make it seem like it's a bad company. It's not. But no, they produced excellent recruiters. 100%, 100%. That, that experience is integral to who I am today. But I went from that into a more cerebral TA environment where I was brought in and, and I worked with hiring managers 
who were so collaborative and, you know, they knew my back, they understood my background. So they brought me in and they were like, Hey, come in, come in to the building, watch what we do, understand what we do. This is, you know, they give me tours of the building. Like if you're going to talk to people, you need to understand what we do and, and talk to them about this. And it was like antenna engineers, like phased array antennas, reflector antennas, spaceborne systems, SATCOM systems, and things like that. And hey, this is what we build. This is the end product. This is what these engineers do to do this. And, you know, it became a, a much closer collaboration than when you're at an agency because you're, hey, you know, John, this is, you know, I talked to this guy. What do you think? He's like, well, yeah. I don't, you know, he's coming from this company. They do that differently from us. So probably not. Rather than, you know, you get your blood pressure up when you're in an agency, like they, a, a lot of them treat clients like they're kings and yeah. that wall is up and things like that. And, you know, I didn't experience that. And so at that point I started to fall in love with recruiting and it was, you know, being able to solve business problems. And I had a, I had a different upbringing, which we'll talk about, but I've, since I didn't cut my teeth in agency world, I've always felt recruitment was a very cognitive effort. <laughs> Yeah. I, you know, I had the, the opposite impression of it, to be honest. Yeah. Like when I first started, I just did not feel like there was a lot of thought behind things. And, you know, there was creativity in the sense that you had to think on the fly, but it wasn't like you weren't creating things in, in that environment that I was in. Whereas mm -hmm. when I got into the corporate side of it, it was like, this is a whole other ball of wax. Like it's, and if you zoom out into you know, I was at a fortune 500 company. Like, yes, I remember at the time there was a running problem because it was during the dot-com boom and yes. they were losing 35 senior level engineers a month. And, you know, they had a problem where they had to plug in 35 new engineers just to keep whole. Um, that was cool to me, right? That was a cool problem to have. Like you started to get into work, workforce planning and projections and things like that. Whereas on the agency side, it's just like, give me a rec, go fill the rec. You know. I had a recruiter who I managed and he did 15 minute phone screens as many as he could, like treated it like a volume game. Like if there's somebody who even did like fit like 40% of the job, um, it, like 40% of the job description, he would schedule that time. So oh, wow. he's I know he's talking like 10, 15 people a day. And at one point I was like, honey, I, you don't have to work that way. Yeah. Like you're, you're kind of, you're, you're burning me out. I don't know, I don't know how else to say it. <laughs> blunt force, right? It's like blunt force. Yeah, right. Exactly. And they, they came from that environment and the 15 minutes like, Hey, how you doing? But it's all right. Let's go through it. Mm -hmm. The auctioneer voice and everything. And I was like, okay, maybe like slow your pace down. Maybe you don't have to talk to that person who, you know, like the 40% thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Let's elevate a bit. Yeah. So I, I will, you know, that, that kind of brings me into another difference, right. In the background. So one of the things that I've carried with me, especially like through negotiations is the concept of it's, it's called the principle of least interest. Have you ever heard of that? No, tell me more. So the principle of least interest states that the person least interested in the relationship has the most power. Mm, mm -hmm. And you know, you kind of have to run that game a little bit and it's, it's just a natural phenomenon, but you have to be attuned to it, especially in a negotiation. And so, you know, if someone is just like completely standoffish, like it or not, if you want to hire them, 
they're going to have a little more leverage and power over you because they don't really care whether or not they get the job. They don't need it. They don't want it. And so now you're, you're in the position where you have to chase them. Whereas if, if I'm in a position where someone who really wants to work here, they've got to have this job. This is their dream job. You have a little more leverage and that's the principle yeah. of least interest at work. So, but you, you learn that in a psych program. <laughs> there you have it. So, so that probably brings me through like, you know, getting into the corporate world, not really my whole career, but. Yeah, I would love to hear about you because I have tons of questions about your background <laughs> because I think it's, you know, having a psych degree is whatever. There's a, we're a dime a dozen. Yes. But for you, I would love to see, like, how do you go from from a music background into recruiting? Yeah, I, I had some good. I had some good folks in my corner and, and good advice. Um, so I'll, I'll kind of start with around the same time span as you. So I'm, I'm a junior in high school and I was, I was a ping pong ball. I was all, all over the place. I was on varsity basketball team. We had just gotten to States. So this is in outside of Philadelphia, um, in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, um, bucolic area. Um, it's about halfway between Philadelphia and New York. So you had some of that city influence, but great place to grow up. My, my parents were wonderful. So we, so junior year, I'm still kind of all over place. I've got basketball one side. I'm also, um, doing really well with the violin. Um, I had gotten into districts and then regionals. And so my parents kind of sit me down and they're like, okay, your grades are meh. <laughs> <laughs> I feel that. We're going to, yeah, like you're, you're all right, but nothing to look at. Like, where do you want to go to school? So I had a couple like state schools in my back pocket, but I really wanted to go to Penn state mm -hmm. and I wanted to go to main campus that at the time, all the satellite campuses were, were popping up and really booming. But I was like, I want to go to main campus. I want to do that. So they said, all right, pick what you want to double down on. And like, I was good at basketball, but I'm not like Penn state material. Mm -hmm. So I went violin. So my senior year doubled down, had the most amazing, um, tutor, Helen, who is just has such a place in my heart. She was amazing. And my son and I actually took uh, piano lessons from her later in life. So we were still mm. connected that way. And, um, so she came three, four days a week. We were, um, practicing our brains out. And then I went to Penn state for auditions. And I found out that if I auditioned through the music school, um, I would get into main campus versus going into general application. Mm -hmm. So that's why I was like, perform, 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 perform. I remember being on the way home in the car and I was just so emotionally exhausted from the experience. So, so you're in you, line. Did you not think you did well or? No, I did not think I did well. Um, I really enjoyed the release of music. I was never the most technically sound player, but I just had so much fun doing it. And mm -hmm. I loved the experience of playing. So it was a very hard process for me to have to, go so diligently, you know, the, the two, three hour, mm -hmm. um, um, stints of, of play and practice so and everything. Help me understand, like how many seats are there? 
to 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 take, right? So you, there's only so right. many people they can accept. That's that had interesting. To weigh on you. I never did the math that way. I never did the math that way. Um, let's see. You had to have a seat in an ensemble, um, and for for the orchestra, gosh, there were probably there were probably thirty two violinists. So some of those right? are upperclassmen, right? So you only get yeah. a fraction of those. Wow! Yeah, I never did that math. Um, Good thing. So the woman in front, <laughs> that would have drove yeah. me crazy. <laughs> I didn't know, but that goes to show my my art over science. And like I just at the time I had like a kind of a wing it mentality. But um, so drove up. I was so exhausted on the way home, and I just remember the woman, the young woman in front of me, played the same um, Mendelssohn, um, violin concerto. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I'm playing Mendelssohn. I love it. I love this piece. It was just like all coming together for me. And she was before me and oh. she played it. She killed it. Oh. Rodney, I'm listening to her and I'm like, Oh my God, she's amazing. She no. killed it. Oh my gosh. And it's so got in my head. And like, it was one of those things where like I had the t- first two pages down pat. And I was like, if I'm getting into the third page, like I'm, I'm shaking in my boots. I'm so nervous. But so, you know, you're I'm on the way home and my parents are like, you all right. And I'm like, I'm so exhausted. That was so hard. And I'm so in my head. So, you know, the, the, the two, three month waiting period is gone. It goes kind of out of your, out of your head. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the letter comes and I got in. Nice. Yes. And so I, um, my one caveat was since my grades were a little bit under, I had to go to summer session, but I actually really enjoyed that. So it was an eight week session. It was freshman only on campus. It's a little party. You kind of immersed yourself. Yeah. Oh God, we had class from <laughs> 19 every day. Um, and then I got to play basketball with, um, with the, uh, with the whole group in the afternoons. It was, it was actually a great summer. Nice. So, now, were there, were there athletes in that, in that, there this summer? It was mostly like what that's a good question. You mean like the, the collegiate athletes mm-hmm. for yes, you you're right. There were awesome. for the fall programs. So yeah. I will tell you like same thing. I started in the summer and uh-huh. I lived with the ninety three freshmen incoming to FSU. That was the year they won the national championship. And, yeah. And so, you know, a lot of those guys like Sam Coward, I don't know if you know that name. He played for the Jets. No. Oh, okay. He was a linebacker for the Jets. Um, he used to cut my hair. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, and I remember Derek Brooks. I met Derek Brooks from. He was a linebacker for the for the Bucks. I met him yes. my first night there, but I I didn't really know anything about Florida State football at the time. Remember, this is my first night on campus. And he came in to to say hi to all the incoming football players. And yeah. he didn't know any better. He's like, hey, how you doing? Shook my hand. I'm like looking at his ACC championship ring. I'm like, who the hell is this guy? There's a bling <laughs> going on. What the heck? And and so there was a cheating story, actually. At one point, one of the guys, he was a, a backup to work done, was like, hey, um, can I see your history paper? It's like, yeah, sure. He took it. The next day, when we got everything back, I remember the professor was like, Mr. Stigall, I need you to stay back. And then she named the four, the four other guys. I'm like, what the hell is going on? 
And so after class, everybody leaves. It's the five of us talking to her. And Dr. Jones, she says, Mr. Stegall, did you know that there are five copies of this paper? And I was like, oh, no, I did not. And she goes, I didn't think you knew. You may leave. (laughs) (gasps) Oh, my goodness. But those dudes had you know, circulated it amongst themselves. Nothing happened to them. But anyway, I'm sorry. So <laughs> you're partying, um, you're partying in the summer. Party in the summer, Penn State. Um, I go into, you know, with my wing it mentality. I was like, I'll pick uh, music education. Mm-hmm. And then we start <laughs> in the fall and it's ped- pedagogy, which is the, the practice of you spend two to four weeks learning the basics of every instrument in the orchestra, because if you're conducting an orchestra, you're going to have to, at one point, tell the flute how to do this, tell the clarinet to do this. So you learned to play them a little bit? Uh, No, Rodney, I last like three weeks. I was like, this is so (laughs) not my wheelhouse. Um, This is so not what I had in mind. Um, So, you know, again, with kind of this meandering way, I was like, why don't I do like a business minor as the just in case? Mm -hmm. And then I went into like, it was a generalist music degree. Um, So you touched on everything from music history, music theory. I was in the orchestra. So that's, that is a a Mm -hmm. lot of credit. Um, that's, that's full time. Um, had so much fun, traveled all around. We went to Spain, we went to Scotland. Yeah. Super cool. Really fun. Um, and then, so had the business minor and then as kind of these extra credits, I got a part-time job at the performing arts center and I was helping out with meet and greets with artists and contract negotiations for when they were coming into town, helping with riders, um, all that kind of good stuff. I I had the opportunity to meet um, Itzhak Perlman when he was in town. That was very cool. Um, So I would be like the front face, like student that was like, hey, welcome to the Performing Arts Center. Mm -hmm. Um, So with all of that, when I graduated, I went to exactly that. So um, I went to the Kimmel Center in Philadelphia, which is a performing arts center. So did you completely give up like performance at that point? Like you graduated and like, okay, I'm done. I'm not going to perform anymore. You know what? My, my last, my last conference, my last concert of my senior year was Beethoven's fifth. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you know what? that feels like a really good end of a chapter. <laughs> and at the time, like you, like I said, it, I really enjoyed the artistic therapeutic, like Alpine. I love to play. And like, I remember coming home from high school and I would just go and like our, we, I always practice in our side living room and I would close the French doors and I would like, like play as loud <laughs> as I could and just like jam out. And it was a really good release and then I, I hate to say it, but the, the kind of technique implementation and that little, like to sit in a practice room and practice your bow hold for four hours Ooh. took, Ooh. took a lot of the joy out of it for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so by the time I graduated, I needed a break. I, I did. Gotcha. Well, and, and, and I think, so 
if I may, right, I guess the question yeah. would be is like, because you have to, you mentioned going into music theory. It's because you're, dest- yeah. you're deconstructing every little thing at that point. And, yeah. and when you're doing it, you, you know, take a piece that you love, take Beethoven's Fifth. After you deconstruct yeah. it and you're listening to it after you've deconstructed that, do you, does it lose some of the magic? Uh, no, I still think it's extremely, it's, it's very interesting. That was never the part that got me the most excited, gotcha. you know? Um, it was always like, I loved the release. I loved kind of the, um, I loved playing as an ensemble. I didn't have, I had a little bit of the, of stage fright for like solo performance that always gave me a lot of anxiety, mm-hmm. but you kind of, you kind of work through that. But it was just that, that like, I got into school and then there were a lot of people that said like, Hey, you've been holding your bow wrong for 15 years. It's like, Ugh. okay. Yeah. So it was this, like this minutia and the correction. And and like you said that like in depth, where I was like, Oh my gosh, I need a break of this. So I was still like in the peripheral big time, mm-hmm. you know, we're hosting the Berlin Philharmonic, you know, I worked for, um, so my first boss was, uh, Zubin Mehta's son, um, who was, uh, he's the, the conductor for Berlin Philharmonic oh, and wow. many other, um, wow. yeah. So was learning great amounts. So this is the Kimmel center in Philadelphia. They have two venues. Um, one seats about 2,200, the other about 500. And they're really kind of all over the place. So like we would host, like we had Herbie Hancock, who's a wonderfully kind gentleman. And then the next week. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I love it. And then, um, the next week, like John Legend was still kind of in his Philadelphia roots and he did a solo piano acoustic concert. So like it was kind of a cool, a, eclectic mix of, of shows. Um, the Roots with their Philly bass, nice. they, they did a show every summer. Um, so I was doing contract negotiations, same kind of thing. Artists meet and greet, you know, welcome in, help you with your rider. Um, I'll tell you from, so everybody always thinks of, I think it was, like Metallica or Guns N' Roses, who was the one that said, like, I only want the green M&Ms or something like oh. that. Like, I never came across anything like that. But, like, some people, if they had been to Philadelphia, they wanted, like, the specific local cheesesteak right. and, and things like that. So that's about the amount of specificity that people got into. But I, I don't blame them. That's probably what mm-hmm. I would do if I was traveling the world. I'm in Philly. Yes. <laughs> so... um I did that for a while and I was having a great time and it was actually a really great job for a, for somebody coming right out of school because I also did some of the board relations. Oh, wow. So you've got these heavy, heavy hitters on nonprofit boards and, um, you know, taking meeting minutes and figuring out how to get that. That was a whole political mess in itself. Yeah. Nonprofit boards are a different beast than, than that's, regular boards. That's a neat thing to be exposed to at that age. Yes, absolutely. Um, performing arts is o- and and nonprofit is always a difficult space to be in. And I was like, you know what? I'm I want to be a good practitioner of the arts. I felt like I was going to stay in it, but there's um, at the time my my ex husband was a chef, mm-hmm. and I felt like we had two. Um, you know, have like kind of like passion jobs where like you makes a lot of consolations 
whether it's, I mean, I told you I was making $29,000 a year. I was, um, I was living at home. I had a long commute. Um, but I was just like living and breathing it every day and loving it. Right. So I said, now I'm going to try the sell side. So I got picked up by an agency. So I was an artist rep. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, my territory was the Rockies to the West. So I was going out to Colorado, Utah, California. I'm like newly married. I'm realizing that, oh, if I want a family like this monthly travel is going to be a lot. And to get really successful as an agent, it was like New York or LA. It wasn't quite the lifestyle that I had in mind. And truthfully, I didn't love sales. Like Mm -hmm. I I was like, I could do it, but my soul's dying a little bit. So (laughs) I just, now now, what um, was soul crushing about it? Was it, was it dealing with the artists or dealing with the venues? The artists were fine. It was the venues of, so we were kind of a, we were smaller mom and pop shop and we had a great roster, Mm -hmm. but it was, it's a hard sell for selling in that space and not having the developed relationships. Like most of the venues were going to like three or four of the big agencies and saying Mm -hmm. like, okay, you know, give me your top three for this year. So we were kind of the little guy trying to fight in, Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and make a name and, and get our artists out there. So a lot of the people that we were representing were like new to the U S. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's tough. So you're trying to get them their breaks essentially. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And all while making what, $42,000 a year. So I had a little, I had a nice (laughs) little bump, but (laughs) still like, you know, not, not, not bringing it all home. So, um, that it was just a grind. And, um, so I called a friend who was, um, I, I still don't quite like the terminology headhunter, but he always yeah. referred to himself as headhunter. And so I called a family friend, um, wonderful Joe Stoffer, my dad's best friend. And I was like, Joe, I was like, can I get a little advice? And I said, I, I am, um, you worked in so many different industries and you've represented so many different, um, skill sets, experiences. I was like, with what I've been doing, like, what should I do? I said, I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't, I don't want to be in music and I, I need a break. And I know that I'm just not going to make any money ever <laughs> if I stay in this. And, um, he was like, well, Jewel, he was like, listen to this. He was like, you've been doing negotiations. You're doing sell of people to people, you know, artist groups to venues. Mm-hmm. Um, you are great on the phone. You're super personable. You understand people. And I was like, okay, cool. What's that? And he was like, recruiter. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> now, did you, did you recognize what that was right away? Or did you have the, well, what no. is that? <laughs> I, well, yes. I recognize when, you know, when he was like, what did you just say? And I was like, I don't know. He was like, you would do my job. And I was like, oh, right. Um, <laughs> I did not, because I knew him and this was, let's see, this was around 2012, um, like 2010, 2012. So since I knew, um, Joe, I understood the concept 
and I knew how he worked. And he had also had another friend who was leading up Monster at the time, which oh, was, wow. you know, the, the job board of job boards during the early 2000s. And right. so so I, I got it, but I didn't understand, like, the application of it. Mm-hmm. So he said, I've got a buddy who owns a firm, local guy, and it was retained executive search for HR and great client list, Walmart, Cigna, True Green, the the lawn company, Mm -hmm. like some good national stuff and then some smaller things peppered in. So I, I feel like I fell into the, the lucky pot of gold with that because they took on me. Well, you know, I'll back up. Right. So cutting your teeth on executive search, that's, you know, that's not talking to lower level people. I mean, that's right. You know, usually it takes a while for people to build up into that. It was a small firm. So there were like three. So we were search consultants. So there were three search consultants. One person I actually worked with for years and years after that, um, the wonderful, amazing Kate Weinberg, who trained me how to do my job. Mm -hmm. Um, Hi, Kate. And we were in a super small, like family office and just sit next to each other and figuring it out. Um, like I said, much more of like the art over science, but when we, I kept on the candidate side until about a year in and, you know, when they finally put me on the client call, I was like, Oh my God, I'm so nervous. But I did okay. I think mm-hmm. I said like four words on that first call. Um, well, on that side of yes, the fence, no. the, the client gets built up. That relationship gets built up so exactly. much to where yeah. there's, you know, we talked about like learning like high stakes and learning how to lose and win and stuff like that. It is like, yes. it's so built up that I think people lose their, their authenticity to some degree when they're dealing yes. with clients because it's so high stakes for them. Yes. And we were, um, we were, I mean, it was such a great job because I all, one of the things that I loved too, was that I was learning the HR side at the same time because it was all HR search. And Mm, so it was almost preparing me for that internal recruitment job, just as much as like how to, I actually really liked starting an executive search because you really know how to treat a candidate. Mm -hmm. And that carried with me through, through my career. Um, but I remember the the moment I fell in love with it. So, so Kate was the lead and she was always killing it. And Kate got married and went on her honeymoon. So she was out for like three weeks and I was like, Oh my God, I've got to have her back. It's my time to shine. Like I better be submitting a million and one candidates while she's out and, and carrying the torch, all that kind of stuff. Got to make her look good. So I remember the first time we were actually, we were submitting for Cigna. They're building out a comp team and it was like the first time that I actually heard what a client needed and found the candidate mm, nice. for, and that mesh. And I was like, Oh my God, that's it. And it was like that spark. And I was like, that's it. That's how it works. And it's was that like, for me, the more cognitive practice, I think can be very difficult to match a talent with a spec. Yeah. And you know, I think what people don't recognize and I, I can see it in your face right now and I can hear it in your voice people who don't do what we do don't understand what that dopamine hit does when that, when you make that match. And, you know, 
I'm not, I haven't done a lot of drugs in my life or anything, but, but I know a dopamine hit when I feel it. Right. And that's, it's better than any runner's high I've ever felt or anything. Like it is just like the epitome of accomplishing something. Yes. Yes. And you, you can label that, you know, a lot of recruiters are like, Oh, the people, I love the people. I love this, love that. And, you know, that's a very broad term. And I think a lot of people default to that, but it's, I've always been super jazzed about when you can connect the business lead, the business need with an actual person mm-hmm. and a skill set. But then you also then have the daunting task of convincing them to come work for the company. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. It's, yes. it's that, you know, we talked about that. There's, there might be a million of them, but it doesn't mean they all want to work for you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's how that's how I fell into recruiting. That's my my origin story. And I, I think you didn't even touch on a lot of the other extracurricular stuff that you've done in your life. But I think it's very applicable since there isn't traditional curriculum mm-hmm. or a degree for it. You have to kind of borrow from your prior, quote, superpowers 100% along the way. Yeah. So, I mean, some of yours, you, you are super creative, you're a lifelong learner, you're also competitive. I mean, you've had sports in your family for your life. Yeah, and I, and I would say the same thing about you. I mean, being able to stand on a stage in front of thousands of people is, mm-hmm. you've got to have a lot of intestinal fortitude to do this job, which yes. that takes. And you've got to have a thick skin about it. And so, you know, in, in my normal life, I'm pretty, pretty shy. I don't, you know, I, I don't get my energy from, from being out in front. I, I learned in my career to, to do that, but I recharge by being pretty introverted. And I've always been jealous of people like you who get their energy from that. You know what I mean? And um, that's, that makes me super jealous, but it's, it's part of, again, we touched on it earlier there need there really does need to be a better curriculum for recruiters, and I think you know some of these companies like Airs and stuff like that. There've been I've seen different ones, yeah, but that's that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a very serious university level curriculum around it, and you know even in an IO psych program you go through it, but it's it's employee selection, and it has nothing to do with what I would conceive of recruiting. Employee selection is about the architecture of your assessment systems, right? It has mm-hmm. nothing to do with how do you how do you approach a negotiation, how do you how do you collaborate with with hiring managers in the business, how do you do any type of planning? Those types of things just aren't taught, and it's and it's like an interdisciplinary thing because you know to some extent you have to almost go to that Peter Block book about consulting. And, mm-hmm. and take some of that out. And how do you approach your consulting with a hiring manager? You know, you, you take some of the IO pieces, you take some of the the interviewing pieces. There's just no curriculum that does that. I'm wondering if how many national universities even have colleges and university have HR degrees. Yeah, you know, I, I remember it at FSU. It was a business degree, and it was like a concentration. And yes. so you kind of. Added... I know Mich- Michigan's got a great one. Yeah, um, Michigan State does. Yeah, 
Yeah, Illinois. Mm-hmm. That was always a, a popular one too. Um, I just don't even. Yeah, like. And and I'm not. That's, yeah, I'm that's not saying crazy. you should be able to major in recruiting, but you know, from from my experience, people just kind of say it's oh, let's just go learn Boolean, or you know, hear these search techniques, yeah. and yeah, know, here's a, a class on behavioral interviewing, and then that's kind of the sum of it. <laughs> Yeah. Which is a, a darn shame because it's so I mean, complex the of it too. And you know, what's interesting also, I think so much is changing now with like remote work and pay equity. Mm-hmm. And, um, like I remember we had at one of our, um, you know, OFCCP says that you have to have a job posted for, um, it, they don't specify the amount of days, but it's so that, you know, everybody who might want to apply would be able to reasonably mm-hmm. have that opportunity too. So usually it's somewhere between like three and seven days. Right. But now we know that if you have a recruiter job open for seven days for your compliance window, you're going to have like 2000 applicants to mm-hmm. go through to, yeah. to get that. So what actually would, I mean, there's got to be a thing, like, is there a scale of, okay, when you hit 100 applicants on a job, can you take it down? So so within OFCCP, there's, you can use what's called a data management technique to do that. Okay. And so... I knew you would know this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so your data (laughs) management technique helps you get through a high volume of of applications. And, And you define it. However you define it, you can say, I'm going to do every fifth. I'm going to do the first hundred, um, whatever that is. You just have to be, have to uniformly and consistently apply it. But the data management, but I, again, that's not something that people learn. You know, I, I think yeah. over time people learn it, but it's not a core part of, of a recruiter's education. And I, I think what it, what it does in our industry and, and, you know, I see it all the time and you probably see it all the time because people complain about recruiters. And I think what happens is it, it lowers the floor mm-hmm. on performance. So it's, you have a, a huge swing of talent in our industry. You have people who are, shouldn't be here and you have people who are just completely outstanding. But if you're a candidate someone calling you, you don't know the difference. You just know it's a recruiter and you could have yes. a terrible experience from someone who just doesn't know what they're doing. They don't know how to, how to talk to a candidate. They don't know how to pull information. And I, you know, I, I spoke one of our listeners, James, Hey James, um, Hello. asked me, he's like, look, I get called all the time by recruiters and I don't know how to, how to deal with it. And I think from his perspective as a candidate, it's like, they all come at me like, like a, like a drunken prom date. <laughs> but then three quarters of them ghost me. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's the same issue, right? As a recruiter, it's like you're a professional flirter. (laughs) 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 I've used that before. uh, Every once in a while, but it's, you know, our job is to, is to help people make people fall in love with, with the company we're recruiting for. Right. So that reminds me of that terrible ad in, Oh my gosh. It's always in like the American Airlines magazine and they call themselves like um, headhunter matchmakers. Oh, I haven't like, seen that. Uh, their executive search for love. 
Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the first time I saw it, I was like, ooh, that's slimy. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I don't think I could do that. I, no. And, and I say the professional flirter term, and, and you're very lighthearted in, in the sense yeah, that, of course. you yes. know, we've, reminded. <laughs> we've got to be, you know, charming enough. Yes. To, to make a stranger want to talk to us. Oh, my God. Um, and, you know, that's that's the truth. But the thing is, is I, I think over time, a good recruiter can balance that with reality. And, you know, I think younger recruiters who, not younger, but less experienced recruiters who don't understand how to balance that can lead mm-hmm. people on really easily and say, well, yeah, I love your resume. I'm going to, you know. And, and the yes. next thing you know, someone, their boss or a client says, no way. And they don't have the heart to go back and, and talk to people. And so the people end up getting ghosted. But, you know, being able to balance, like, part of our job is giving bad news. And yes. no one may want to do that, but you got to learn how to do it to be decent. We have a desperate need in our industry to raise the floor on performance. Yeah, I agree. The um, the delivering bad news piece there there's a there's a bit of an art to it, mm-hmm. you know. Um, obviously, still, you said something earlier with the etiquette piece. Mm-hmm. There, there's an etiquette to it, and you always try and give it a developmental right. stint, you know. Right. Um, but then there's also some circumstances that they just like crash and burn and are, are so bad. So mm-hmm. I, we, um, this is digressing a little bit, but I remember an experience where we had a, a gentleman interviewing for a, a VP of sales role. And at the end of his interview, he did great. But when he shook my hand, he grabbed my waist. Oh, what? Yeah. So I said to the manager who was who referred him and they were friends. And I said, I, I have to tell you this. And he was like, he literally like slammed his hands on the table and was like, why did he do that? And I was like, oh my gosh, Um, that's something that has always made me curious, Juliet, because I'm a, I'm a guy, of course. Yeah. In in case people haven't figured that out. (laughs) Um, Like, you know, I, I hear how pervasive sexual harassment is, and this is a totally different topic, but yeah. like, you know, I, I think about like, has anyone ever sexually harassed my wife or, has, you know, has, has Juliet ever been sexually harassed? Because I, even as a guy, I've been in situations where I'm like, if I cared, that would be sexual harassment. Yes. So has that happened a lot to you? Just. I've had a, a very small amount of circumstances, and I would never categorize it myself as sexual harassment, but I've been uncomfortable, mm-hmm. which, yep. but I've always been very, you, you know me, I'm a pretty mm-hmm. direct person. So if somebody makes me uncomfortable, I tell them that, and that's usually puts an end to it. I'm not the right. one that's. I've never been in a situation where I felt as though I needed to go outside and escalate separately. Mm-hmm. Um, like I had a colleague once tell me how sexy he thought it was that I changed my own tires. And I was like, oh. look, don't talk to me like that, please. Oh, my 
gosh. And at the time, I was like, you know my husband. Like, please oh, stop. Even um, worse. So, and well, that person was completely mortified. So mm-hmm. it was null and void after that. <laughs> and everything was done. But um, I, I think there are... I feel very lucky that I've been surrounded by people that are good human beings mm-hmm. with without issue. Um, I will tell you there were times, so I've had two kids in a, um, corporate environment. Mm-hmm. Um, I was probably the most comfortable being pregnant in an office. It makes some men very uncomfortable. Really? Yes. So like for one example, you know, you, you get these like stitches in your side. So I sat down and I kind of like leaned back and I was probably like seven, eight months pregnant. So I, I got, I got the full globe going mm-hmm. and I'm kind of like rubbing underneath my belly. Um, just kind of trying to like loosen up a, a, a little cramp I have. And Doing like the, a female Al Bundy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'm just, and it's like somebody that I know and I'm, I'm comfortable with. So I'm like, Oh God, it feels good to be off my feet. And uh, like, I'm holding there and they're like, Whoa, 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 what's going on? Are you all right? Do you have to leave? Are you okay? And I was like, what do you, I think I'm fine. I'm t- like, okay. Like I'm not an alien. Just having a baby. You have three of them yourself. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so that's probably the most uncomfortable. Yeah, I'm I'm so oblivious to that stuff. Like I, I, it has happened to me before, but I didn't care. And especially at the time, I was like, "This is what is going on here." And yeah. it was when I was younger. Like I used to run like 20 miles a week. I was in really yeah. good shape. I worked out every day before I got married. And um, I remember I was sitting in my office, and a woman that I worked with came in and closed the door. I was like, "Oh, I did something. I'm in trouble." She was yeah. just known for having a temper and stuff. I was like, this is terrible. I don't know what I did. So I'm kind of bracing myself and she comes over and she leans across my desk and goes, can I see you without your shirt on? Whoa. <laughs> yeah. That's aggressive. Yeah. Yeah. And I was just kind of like, you know, again, I'm completely oblivious, Juliet, to stuff like that. I just. It, I generally am as well. I'm like, but that's pretty direct <laughs> to me. I didn't even see it that way. I was just kind of like, that's weird, but yeah, sure. If you want to see it, I don't care. <laughs> that's weird. <laughs> I'm so oblivious to, to like things like that. And I'm just like, yes. if you want to, sure. I don't care. <laughs> and so I stand up. And so as I stand up, someone knocks and comes in and she leaves. Yeah. I'm like, okay, that was weird. And then, you yeah. know, later, when I'm at home, I'm like, oh, oh, that just <laughs> now, happened. Now, were you married? No, I wasn't married. Okay. I wasn't married. So it wasn't, you know, it was, it was no problem. Um, yeah. But that's probably, you know, that's just me. That's, but I will tell you a funny, funny thing is like, I, I, I can't, we did like an experiment in college. Like you do these okay. labs, like sensation and perceptions, and you kind of go through these vials, you label them. And at the end of it. Everyone kind of tells what it is. And there was one that I'm like, you're supposed to waff, right? So I'm waffing people, if you're listening. Um, yeah. <laughs> so you're not supposed to put it right up to your nose because it can, you know, burn your nose. And yeah. I couldn't smell. I was like, this is water. And so I got to the point where I was like sticking that thing up my nostril and I couldn't smell anything. So I was just like, that's yeah, water. Yeah. And so we're going through everything. And uh, I remember the professor goes, okay, here's vial number two. Did anyone not smell this? 
And so I'm not even paying attention. I just raise my hand and I look up and I'm the only person in like a 60 person lab who has raised their hand. And I'm like, like there was no scent. What they meant was there was absolutely no scent that no you could scent. detect from that Nothing liquid. whatsoever. To me, okay. it, it was water. It was okay. clear. And so I'm like, oh, what did I just do? What have yeah. I done? And, and so he goes, yeah, you know, oh, it was a woman. I'm sorry. She goes, this is normal. So typically in a, in a class this size, you would see one person who doesn't smell that. Those are human pheromones, <laughs> which oh are, my gosh. <laughs> and, and, you know, at that point I'm like, oh, that explains a lot, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Well, to be honest, from a, if somebody walks into your office, and I want to see you without your shirt on. You're like, oh, that's weird. I, don't yeah. know. <laughs> I just don't. You know what I mean? I'm, I guess I'm oblivious to yeah. stuff like that. Like, I don't know. <laughs> oh, and so that's why, you know, it always concerns me. Like, I would never like when I'm at work, I don't think like that. And so I would never intentionally try to make any, anyone uncomfortable. I'm pretty, pretty vanilla. Right. In an office setting. And I, I think um, I really want to know. We, we have to cover next week what, what Mrs. DeGaulle thinks about this part of the thing. <laughs> I will ask her. Well, maybe we'll yeah. invite her in for, for a minute. Um, oh, my gosh. I love that. <laughs> That's so good. Well, we meandered a bit, as we always do. Yeah, hope, hopefully everyone was is forgiving of us. I think it was, hopefully it was entertaining to learn a little bit yeah. about us. <laughs> Absolutely. Um Next week, we will be back here as usual. But Rodney loves learning more about you. Likewise. All your superpowers. And I think for today, that is it for That Recruiter Show.